Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the world, the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one Untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The word of the Lord. I went uh, downstairs, I had to grab something from downstairs during the service, and uh, Stu, our custodian, was making more coffee, because we're really sucking it down today, and he said, uh, he said is it a special occasion, is something happening? I said, no, it's just, it's just church, and so which is, you know, which we forget is a special thing. Each and every week, we gather to celebrate what's, what's happening here in this passage, uh, and that Paul is at pains to highlight in the entire 15th chapter is the gospel. What's at the heart of the gospel and why it's something that we gather to celebrate each and every week, each and every Lord's Day. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is that every Sunday rolls around and it is time for a fresh start. You can hit the reset button. And so we've been doing this series this summer. We're almost done with it. It's called Public Faith, and and it's uh, one that was done at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City by Tim Keller in 2013. And and so it's this question of how do we live and and share our faith, you know, hide it under a bushel? No, right? I'm going to let it shine. Okay, good job. Yeah, and you get the bushel and you don't hide. No, it's coming out. All right. And so, you know, we want to live that. We don't want to hide it under a bushel, but we don't want to shove it in people's faces in such a way that it causes unnecessary offense. And we want to contribute to a culture of really openness, honesty, and civility. And while those things can be intention sometimes, despite what the current climate suggests, they are not contradictory values. Honesty, openness, keeping it real, civility, those, those things um, can be held in a creative tension. But when it comes to public faith, it's saying, okay, we, we carry the Christian message which shapes our Christian identity and character into the public square. All of that begs this question of, of well, what is the Christian message? What is it at the very core that Christians believe? In other words, what is the gospel? And that's one of those disarmingly simple questions that you ask. And, and if you were stopped on the street and someone asked you that question, well, what's the gospel? It's an interesting thought experiment to think, well, how would I respond? And, and I think for many of us, you know, even those of us uh, who've been Christians maybe for decades or even raised in the church, right? We've been around in our whole lives, believed our whole lives. We, we might be reduced in that instance to stammering and sort of stuttering and blurt out some kind of word salad uh, that hopefully would include like words like God and Jesus. Um, but, you know, who knows how much sense it would make. And so if that's your fear going, wow, geez, uh, 
what's my elevator pitch for the gospel? Today's sermon, it's about unpacking, and Paul does it in about as short as you can with this rich, dense language, uh, but beautiful about what, what the gospel is, what's its form, what kind of message it is. That's really important to understand. And, and second, what's its content? Okay, what is this about? And lastly, what's its effect supposed to be? What's the work that it's supposed to do in our lives? And so when we're engaged in public faith, we can be sure that if we understand what the gospel is, we're going to be majoring in the majors. That's important, not, not majoring in the minors. So first, what kind of message is the Christian message? One of the most important things about Christianity, and that differentiates it actually, is the type of message that it's the core, at its core. And it differentiates it from all other religions and all other ideologies. And so here's what I mean. That basically, when it comes to, to religion and ideology, basically, what is this sort of totally encompassing worldview, this vision of, a, of the world and what's wrong with it and how we can fix it? Um, every other religion and ideology, they have founding figures whose central role was they offered one, you know, a vision of a better world, the world as it should be or could be. And then second, they tell you what it is that you need to do in order to bring that world about, how you can achieve it. So the Buddha comes and he teaches that the best life is one lived free from attachment and desire. That's what causes suffering, is because we are attached to transient things. And so here's the four noble truths, and in order to attain nirvana, complete detachment, walk on the noble eightfold path. And Moses comes down the mountain with the law, and he says, in order to live in covenant relationship with God and enter into and remain in the land of promise, keep these commandments. And Karl Marx, he holds out a vision of a, of a socialist utopia of radical equality where each gives according to their means and receives according to their needs. And he says that we can achieve this through a revolution where the workers seize the means of production and they take their rightful labor, takes its rightful place over capital. So all of these systems say, here's the better world and here's what you can do to achieve it to bring it about. But Christianity is different because first and foremost, the Christian faith is not about moral instruction. Instead, Paul says that you remember the gospel. And that word for us, I mean, the word gospel has become part and parcel of the Christian vocabulary. And for us, it just means uh, the Christian message. But in the context that Paul is using it, it meant a piece of urgent, important world-significant news, right? It's what breaking news used to mean before everything was breaking news. And so Christianity, at its core, isn't teaching about a way of life. It's the announcement of breaking news about how the world has changed. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite uh, theologians and scholars, uh, and he's an Anglican, He captures this wonderfully on his little commentary on this passage when he writes, Christianity, you see, isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a political agenda. It includes and indeed gives energy to all those things. But at its very heart, it is something different. It is good news about an event which has happened in the world, an event because of which the world can never be the same again. And those who believe it and live by it will thank God never be the same again either. 
So Paul is saying that this is the gospel. This is the breaking news that I shared with you and that you believed and that you staked your entire life on. And because of this message and because we believe it's true, it has changed the Corinthians and it ought to change our entire orientation to reality, to, to, to you know, morality and, and politics and commerce, everything. Everything changes because of this breaking news. And Paul says that, he says, this is the gospel. This isn't something that I made up and brought to you. This announcement of breaking news is the same one that was shared by all the early church leaders. That's why he uses the language of tradition. He says, that which I received, I passed on to you. It's a beautiful thing about the gospel for us is, is it doesn't require any novelty or creativity or ingenuity from us. We don't have to make it up again and again and again to try to make it interesting or, or relevant. Of course, we can be creative in how we pass it on and how we communicate it, but at its core, it's the same message over and over and over again. It's the sharing of the good news about Jesus, that Christ, dot, 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 in the words of Paul. Right, so that's the type of message that Christianity is. It's not good advice. It's not rules to live by. Fundamentally, it is good news, and that sets it apart. Every other religion and ideology says, this is what you need to do. But the Christian, first and foremost, says, this is what Christ has done. And that difference makes all the difference in the world. So that's the form of of the gospel, breaking news that the world isn't the same anymore because what Jesus has done. But what's the content of the news that we have to share? And thankfully, Paul gives us this wonderful little summary. He says, he begins it by saying, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so the content of the Christian message about Jesus, it begins with his death. That's the beginning of the news that we have to share. And you might ask, well, what happened to Jesus' life in this presentation of the gospel? Like the whole, you know, large two-thirds portion of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How can Paul just sort of skip over that stuff? You know, you can't yada, yada, yada through the life of Jesus, right? But he doesn't totally do that because there is a dense world of meaning packed in that little word, Christ, that the gospel begins with. That Christ. And so the gospel starts with Christ, which isn't Jesus' name. You know, my mom used to always tell this joke, it wasn't Joseph and Mary Christ, you know, getting, getting married. And, and so this is, a, this is a title, not a name. And, and, and this title means God's anointed king. And so to, in order to understand what Christ means, you first have to understand how Jesus' life demonstrated that he was God's anointed king and how his life also demonstrated what this kingdom looked like in practice. And so behind that one little word, Christ is an entire narrative, an entire world of meaning about Jesus' life that you need to understand in order for this all to make sense. And Paul also says that this happened in accordance with the scriptures. So behind the gospel isn't just the story of Jesus' life, but it's, it's, it's the whole Bible, which for Paul and his audience was the Old Testament. So Paul is saying, you want to understand this news about Jesus. You need to understand you know, his life, but you also need to understand the entire Old Testament and how his story is a climax of everything that the Bible was telling, right? And, and, and 
And in order to understand Jesus, we can never do away with, with the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. So the content of the Christian message is about Christ, Jesus as God's anointed king, bringing God's long-promised kingdom, which is what the entire Bible had been pointing to and how Jesus did this through dying for our sins. This dying for our sins, this piece is where the gospel message has gotten in the recent, maybe last century, probably the most controversial, but it's also where the gospel message is at its most inclusive. And so at the heart of the Christian message is that Jesus came to deal with the most fundamental human problem that there is, and that is the problem of sin. What's wrong with the world? You know, we could give a long list of answers to that, but, but in the Bible and in Christianity, the answer is what's wrong with the world is sin. And you go, well, what is sin? And that's a big, complicated question, too. But in the Bible, sin is really kind of three things, at least three things, three dominant motifs. And one is that sin is, is a, it's like a power. It's, it's a force that separates us from God. And, and, and in some places, this power, this force is described in, in personal terms. There's the, the murder of, uh, of uh, Abel by Cain. And so the Lord warns him. He says, sin is crouching like a lion, waiting to devour you. And we see it in, in, in Satan and the evil one and the, and the enemy. So sin is this kind of personal power in Scripture. But it's also the ways in which we miss the mark with our thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes so that sin is missing the mark. And then sin is also when we go outside of the boundaries, when we trespass the boundaries that have been set forth for us by God. And so the fundamental human problem in Paul's gospel is that we've been alienated from God by sin, which in turn has fractured the relationship between God and humanity, between our fellow human beings and us in creation. The situation of the world is that it's been shattered like a, a clay pot into a million little pieces. So I have a clay pot here. You know, I'm a prop pastor. Um, some Sundays. Maps are props. That's kind of what I go on. But you know, you have this pot and you go, well, this is the world. And then, oh, let's see what happens. Oh my gosh. Say a prayer. Yeah, shattered. If you didn't know what shattered meant. That's the illustration. Be careful when you come up front later on in the sermon. And Stu, I'll pick it up, okay? It's not for you to do. So you go, wow, the world is shattered. It's in a ton of pieces. Well, let's just put them back together. We can all just sort of do our best and try our best and fix it and put it back together. But the problem is that, that not only can't we put it back together, only God can do that. And we broke it. And so it's our responsibility and despite the better angels of our nature, we actually kind of want to keep it broken since we were part of breaking it in the first place. And so what's God to do, right? Throw it away? Have nothing to do with us? And so the Christian message is that Jesus' death for our sins is his mysterious and wonderful way of picking up all of these billion pieces and putting them back together. And in theological terms, and this is why I broke the pot, to try to give a, a visual illustration of when we're talking about atonement, we break it down, at-one-ment. It's about bringing back together that which has been broken. So you think about what does atonement mean? It means to repair, to put back together that which has been shattered. 
And so this notion that Jesus died for our sins, that little word for is doing a lot of work. And so depending on how it's used, it can mean because of our sins. So Jesus died because of our sins. But it also means on our behalf or in our place. And so this idea of of substitution, of dying in our place, it's integral to the gospel. But it's a notion that's fallen out of favor in certain quarters of Western Christendom in the last century. And on this, I need to share this wonderful passage from uh, a woman named Fleming Rutledge. She's an Episcopalian preacher and theologian. And, And on this, she writes, Rabbi Michael Goldberg is an exceptionally gifted interpreter of the biblical story. And in his book, Jews and Christians, Getting Our Story Straight, his retelling of Matthew's version of Christ's passion and crucifixion excels that of many Christians in its sympathetic appreciation of what Matthew wants us to see. Notice, for instance, this question where Rabbi Goldberg writes, why doesn't Jesus come down off that cross and let God put up there in his place those who truly deserve to die? Jews, Romans, in some all of humanity, which has in one way or another taken part in committing such a heinous crime. She continues, here in one sentence, this Jewish commentator makes two crucial points easily and gracefully, as if the substitution motif and the guilt of all humankind were manifest and plain to anyone reading Matthew. Jews and Romans become much larger here than the actual first century Jews and Romans because they represent all types of people in every century. Rabbi Goldberg is not aware of or chooses to ignore a controversy that has been roiling the church for some time. He sees no problem with the idea that Jesus is is crucified in place of those who truly deserve to die, namely all humanity. However, this concept of substitution or exchange applied to the cross of Christ arouses discomfort and even hostility in many circles today. Indeed, this antagonism is widespread and growing. It has been filtering down from academia into the mainline churches for the better part of a century. The fact that so much of it comes from highly placed scholars and church leaders adds to the unease, even distress, of those who have always believed without question in what has been called the substitutionary atonement. It's not an exaggeration to say that in some circles there has been something resembling a campaign of intimidation so that those who cherish the idea that Jesus offered himself in our place have been made to feel that they are neo-crusaders, prone to violence, oppressors of women, and enablers of child abuse. Rutledge then goes on to argue quite correctly that substitution, it's an indispensable aspect of understanding how the death of Jesus Christ could possibly be construed as good news. And so when it comes to understanding how the death of Jesus makes sense, what it means and how God is using it to to overcome the damage of sin and put us back together. The Bible, it uses a variety of metaphors. The Confession of 1967, which comes from the Presbyterian Church's USA Book of Confessions, it, it captures these variety of metaphors beautifully when it says God's reconciling act in Jesus Christ is a mystery, which the scriptures describe using in various ways. It's called the sacrifice of a lamb, a shepherd's life given for his sheep, atonement by a priest. Again, it is ransom of a slave, payment of a debt, vicarious satisfaction of a legal penalty, and victory over the powers of evil. These are expressions of a truth which remains beyond the reach of all theory in the depths of God's love for man. They reveal the gravity, cost, and sure achievement of God's reconciling work. And so at the heart of all these rich and wonderful 
atonement metaphors is the notion of substitution or exchange. The imagery of sacrifice. He's the lamb slain for us. We are Isaac. He's the ram God provides in our place. The ransom of a slave. It's the language of a marketplace. Jesus is the one who pays the ransom for us. We're slaves to sin. We are indebted. He pays the debt we owe from the law court. He receives the sentence that's our due. And when it comes to the defeat of power and evils, Jesus fights the battle for us. And so at the heart of all these metaphors, Jesus is doing something for us instead of us, in our stead, in our place. And substitution is so powerful, and it's the heart of the gospel, because in sin, we do substitution too. We substitute ourselves for God. It's the essence of sin. But salvation is the opposite. God substitutes himself for us. And this notion isn't barbaric. It's, it's beautiful, and it, and, it, and it captures the radical, inclusive nature of Christianity when Paul says that Christ died for our sins. We're all sinners, so we're all in need of grace. There is only equal ground at the foot of the cross. Again, to quote Fleming Rutledge, she says, but what difference does it make to us finally that Christ died in our place? Does this belief call forth tears of self-indulgent repentance and little else? Does it not reveal something to us that we would rather not behold? Do we not see at Golgotha something altogether new about who is the victim and who are the perpetrators? Something about the inclusive nature of human depravity. The content of the gospel then is about how God's anointed king brings his kingdom through the death of Christ on the cross. And, and we can't forget that and, and rising again on the third day. Because without the resurrection, there would be no news to share. And the resurrection is Paul's assurance of our past and our future salvation. That the pot has been put back together, and not just in such a way that it can never be broken again, but but such that it will be filled with new, transformed, and unfathomably glorious new life. And the reason that Paul goes ahead and cites all of these appearances in reference to the resurrection is because he knows the most common objection to this is going to be that it couldn't happen. This is too good to be true. You're making this up. And so Paul, he name checks all these people. He says, go ahead, you ask them what they saw, that what happened. Because people wouldn't believe it. It sounded too good to be true. And it might surprise us to learn that before the Enlightenment, people knew that dead people stayed dead. They had lots of experience, a lot more experience than us dealing with death. And so Paul is saying, if you don't believe this breaking news, go ahead and ask all of these people. They saw it, and they have staked their lives on it. And they can tell you that Jesus is no longer dead, he's alive, he's proof that sin, death, and evil have been dealt a mortal blow. And Paul himself, he says, I am living proof. I was a persecutor of the church of God. I hated Jesus. I I wanted to stamp it out. But then he appeared to me, and now the rest is history. So Jesus' death assures us of our past salvation, and it's like this. Some of us have had the experience of being at a store 
and you're walking out. And if you're a Costco member, you have this experience every time you go shopping. Right, you walk out the store and they go, excuse me, sir or ma'am, did you buy that? And so you, what do you do? You show them the receipt. And the receipt shows them, it proves, I own this. I paid for it. And so Jesus' resurrection is our receipt. That the debt has been paid and we don't owe anything to sin or to guilt or to the enemy or to our former way of living anymore. And we can tweak the metaphor just a bit. You know, we're the product and Jesus is the shopper. And sin asks, excuse me, sir, you sure those people belong to you? And Jesus can show them the receipt showing that we now belong to him. He's taking us home and switching the metaphor again. He's got the adoption certificate. And he's saying, now these are my kids. I'm taking them back. And so the resurrection is our receipt of who we are and who we belong to and that sin no longer owns us or defines us. And it's also the assurance of our future salvation because it speaks to our deepest longings. In Tim Keller's sermon on this passage, he, he makes reference to an essay by J.R.R. Tolkien. He of, you know, the, not the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's C.S. Lewis. He of the Lord of the Rings. And so he wrote this essay called On Fairy Stories, Tolkien did. And, and in it, he defines fairy tales, and, and he explores why they resonate so deeply with us, why it is that we, we love them, why they have this enduring power. And he says that they offer us a window into a, a, a different world, a world that's different but not unrelated to our primary world. And that the secondary world that, that fairy tales create using fantasy and imagination and escapism and consolation, it actually expresses things that are true about our primary world. And he says that at the end, what we love most about fairy tales is that they have a happy ending. That's not really an ending at all. It's just a promise of, of, of an eternal future. Right? They all lived happily ever after. Whereas in our reality, under the shadow of death, there are no truly happy endings. They're all provisional. They all lived happily ever after until they got cancer or until they got old and sick or until they were alone or until they died. And Tolkien says that the joy of the happy ending always comes in the fairy tale as a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. And Tolkien says that the Gospels contain a fairy tale that has become history, that has the inner consistency of reality, and that the resurrection is that fulfillment of our deeply, divinely embedded desire for grace, the unexpected happy ending where we all live happily ever after, a story that isn't too good to be true, but is so good because it is true. And I should probably just stop there, but one last brief thing. So we've seen the type of message that it is. It's, it's breaking news. And it's in a, it, we've seen its content, that it's about Jesus crucified and risen for us. And lastly, very briefly, what is it that the gospel is supposed to do? And for that, we can turn to Paul's words at the end of our passage. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called one, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
the one word that ties this all together is grace. Paul is what he is, and we are what we are by the grace of God. And God's grace towards us is not in vain. And that grace towards us calls forth lives of gratitude. And so when you understand the gospel and what God did for us in Christ, then our lives can become one big thank you letter to God. Right? Grace calls forth from us gratitude. Where we seek to use all that we have and all that we are to glorify him, build up our brothers and sisters, and bless our community, our neighborhood, and world in his name. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to lay aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. To lay aside his crown for my soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.